And we are in our study in the life of Abraham. We've been looking at this series now for a number of months and coming down uh, to the home stretch on the life of Abraham. And we're looking at today, it's going to be probably a three or four part series out of chapter 24 of Genesis, uh, dealing with this, uh, the, actually the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. And it deals with a, a wedding. And I often thought about that. I, I've actually, Warren Wiersbe, in his comments on this, he points that out, that uh, of all the, the topics that God could have covered in detail, the most detailed is actually found in Genesis 24. I mean, you think about it, you think of creation. Creation uh, and the story of creation is shorter than this. Uh, and there's several other great stories found in the book of Genesis. And this one is the most detailed, uh, covering down to 67 verses and yet it deals with like I said a wedding and why would God put so much emphasis on this marriage and this wedding and in particular the chapter deals with an issue called separation in and we'll look at that a little bit this morning in our text and we're going to go down through Genesis chapter 24 reading down to verse 9. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family, and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, And who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. And so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Let's have a word of prayer. God, we are grateful we can open up the Bible this morning and to dig into it. Thank you, Lord, for this account of the man Abraham and and the account of a great marriage that would take place that would influence the whole world. And Lord, I even pray now that as we uh, just dig into the scriptures that you would prepare our hearts to receive things with gladness and obedience. And again, we praise you this morning. And may Jesus be lifted up out of these pages. We pray in his name. Amen. We come for this chapter, uh, A Bride for Isaac is sort of the subtitle. I guess you could choose something a little more creative than that. But um, looking at this chapter, we see several things. And this is just the broad outline for it. But you have the will of the Father. That's the, the, first, in, the first thing there. And then throughout the, the rest of it, we'll look a little further. Because you not only have the will of the Father, but you have the witness of a servant. And then you have um, the... I'm forgetting my point here, the willingness of the bride, and then the last point that we'll look at, and like I said, this is going to be a series of several messages, uh, we're going to look at 
the welcome of the bridegroom. And those are the four points. I had a slide there that I'll, I'll pull up later on that. But we're going to look, first of all, the will of the Father. And what is pictured for us right away is Abraham. And we've been introduced to Abraham already, right? We know a lot about him. We know uh, the, the things that God told him about him. And remember, way back in Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abram. His name hadn't been changed to Abraham yet. And had him in the place called Ur of the Chaldees. And it was a place of polytheism, uh, idolatry. And yet the one true God reveals himself to Abraham, calls him out of that land, and says, I'm going to give you an inheritance, a land, and also descendants. And remember, Abraham was already then an older man, and he and his wife Sarah had not had children. And yet God said, I'm going to bless you and make you the father of the multitude. That's what Abraham means. And so we we see that. And of course, we already have covered this, but through that, God reaffirms his promise, and you have the life of Abraham. And then at age 100, Abraham, his wife being 90, has a son. And it was a miraculous birth and miraculous conception, as is testified that she was well past the years of childbirth. And that would be a very odd thing to have a 90-year-old woman conceive and have a child and be starting as new parents. That would just be, well, it's unheard of. It, it is, except God, according to the New Testament, brought out of the deadness of Sarah's womb, it says, uh, life. And there is a picture there of exactly what God does with the sinner. He takes those of us that are dead in our trespasses and sins, and if you'll trust him, turning from your sin to him and believe, he brings new life, right? Breathes life out of something that was past bearing fruit. And that is exactly the picture that is seen in that. And God was going to show that he could do the impossible. And again, the emphasis is not on Abraham, necessarily. I think as we've gone through this series... You, you know that that's really not the emphasis. It's on the God of Abraham. And then that carries on all the way through to this very day as he's one of the more influential people in the whole world that has ever lived. And uh, billions of people in, on our globe today have some knowledge and following of, of the God of Abraham in that way and, and following after, um, well, these things that are written in Scripture or at least believing those things. All right, so we're here, the will of the Father, verses 1 to 9, and I'm going to look at that here in a moment, but I uh, just want to read again the opening of this, because he says in verse 1, now Abraham was old. How old was he? 140 years old, according to the Bible, and that's old. And he said that's older than anybody I've ever met. I've met some people in maybe 105, I think it was the oldest person I ever met. Um, nevertheless, there appears he, he was going to live another 35 years, and here he is still the man who was uh, given God's promise and somehow, remember last week we looked at the God told Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, who was then just a young boy, and to bring him up and to sacrifice him. And that sounds horrendous, doesn't it? And yet God was going to demonstrate exactly uh, not only the dependence that Abraham had on him, but he was going to provide a substitute. And that's the story of Genesis 22, where God provides a substitute in the stead of Isaac. And a ram, a male lamb, is there. And that lamb takes the place of Isaac. A picture, 
according to the New Testament, of the gospel, which is what God did. God put his lamb, the best, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he died for someone else, me and you. He took our place at the cross. And that's the story of the gospel, that his sin, our, my sin was placed upon him, and I get the righteousness of Christ placed on my account. That's Romans chapter 5, right? And because of that, I have a place in heaven, not because I'm anything good, but because Christ is. And that's the story of the Bible, one of redemption, one of hope. And that's what God was going to do with very real people. And he was going to bring that son later, uh, a wife. And that wife and he would have children and they would, um, well, we would get out of that really all the nations of the earth would be blessed as what according to what abraham was given as god's promise back there it says now abraham was old well advanced in age and the lord had blessed abraham in all things so abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had please put your hand under my thigh and i will make you swear by the lord the god of heaven and the god of the earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the canaanites among whom i dwell But you shall go to my country, to my family, and take a wife for my son, Isaac. You have here a picture of the father, in this case Abraham, who is sending a servant to go and to fetch a bride for his son. Now, a little different uh, traditions than a lot of the places in the world today, although this is what you're seeing is somewhat of an arranged marriage. There was a servant who was involved, and he was given certain criteria that he had to abide by. But on top of that, later on, it says the angel of the Lord would would go before him. It was part of God's leading to do this. That was very common in that day. It's still very common in in our parts of the world where marriages are somewhat arranged. And yes, uh, in a lot of instances, there still needs to be a willing bride and a willing bridegroom. But there's a lot more arrangements that had gone on. And we see that in this. And there's, a, again, a picture when you come to the New Testament where how God the Father and God the Son arranged for a bride. All right, And that bride, according to the book of Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, is, is the church. A bride that also had to be willing. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through uh, this in our study. Well, there were some criteria, and the first thing was that Abraham was not to, or his servant was not to go and just take a woman from among the Canaanite people, which is the place where Abraham was living. He was living in that land, and if you know anything about that, the Canaanites um, were, uh, well, they were uh, basically worshiping false gods, and they were not believers in, in the God of the Bible. Um, They were not followers of the God of Abraham. And the criteria from God himself was that people should not be unequally yoked. And so that believers and unbelievers were not to be unequally yoked together in marriage. And Abraham is following that principle, that, that command. It's not just a principle, it's a command. And he gives that to his servant and says, you're to go and to find someone of my family, of the household, not only of from his bloodline but also from his the spiritual side of things people who were believers and later on in under Moses which would be years later after Abraham uh, God gave very specific instruction to the Jewish people about this and in 
he, he tells them the same thing. He says, you're not to take people of the land um, or, or people that were considered, I guess the word would be heathen, in that they did not believe, because the principle was always that it will draw you away from faith. It will draw you away from God. And although there are exceptions to that, and praise God, there was provision for people to come to faith, they could convert to that. We have the book of Ruth, which Ruth was a Moabite woman. She had, and her people were of um, people that had no place in the land of Israel, and yet she was grafted in by grace, and she appears in the lineage of the Lord Jesus, right? As one of those great-great-great-grandmothers in the house of David and all of that. So we, we know that that wasn't always the case. But they were not to take unbelieving wives. That was the, print, the onus on the man, all right? The man was to take that responsibility. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 says, For you, and this is the reason why, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, just reading that verse, you might go away if you were among the Hebrew people thinking, uh, we are just so special and, you know, walk around very proud and all that. But God reminds them in humility. He says in the next verse, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. They weren't any greater that way. For you were the least of all peoples. See, God was going to take the, the smallest or the least of groups of people and he was going to make great blessing come out of them. Just like he was going to take Abraham and Sarah in their old age and he would bring forth a son and have a son born. Look what he goes on to say. Moses writes, but because the Lord loves you, that's grace. That's when you get something. And in this case, not because they deserved it. And because you would keep the oath which you swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, and the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments." And he goes on and says, And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. And that was very heavy instruction to the Jew. Um, that they were to they were first of all God's people they were not just them their own now we live in a society and we're all part of that society where uh, it's really every man looks out for himself or every woman for themselves right they're always and that's sort of the attitude so many of us as Americans have and for the Christian for the believer it is not such we are first and foremost to be reminded that we're bought with a price just like the Jew in Moses' day and, and from Abraham, uh, that family would come into this world, the, the family of, of Israel. And as they were to remember, they were not their own people. They were God's people, first and foremost. And that's why God puts it such a, a high privilege that they weren't just to go out and to marry into uh, families that would not believe in God. Because the principle, and by the way, that was nothing to do with race. That has nothing to do with any other distinction other than faith. That's the criteria that God had. That they had to be believing. 
and they had to be following the Lord in that. And that principle of unequally yoked means that. Anyways, back to that. Because in the New Testament, that, though it's, it's not a law as such as it was under Moses, it is a command of God, nonetheless, to believers. And when he writes to the church at Corinth, he writes this, uh, Paul does, uh, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 6, he says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And, and that's true, right? I mean, why would you want to be unequally yoked when you know, the important things to you is, is God and following him? And if you believe that you know, by basis of faith that you're saved or redeemed, right? why would you marry somebody who's contrary to that? What fellowship does light have with darkness? You can imagine at best that marriage is going to be one just that functions. It isn't going to be a healthy marriage when two hearts are separated that way to begin with. And then what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. He, you know, God is not contained in a building, right? Uh, oftentimes people will say a church is the house of God. Well, really, no. The New Testament says that if you're a believer, you're the temple of God. The Holy Spirit resides within you and within me. And in such, why would you be linked together um, with someone who isn't part of that? And that's where he talks about. And he goes on to say, As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul quotes directly from the Old Testament, which was the principle given to the Jewish people, he himself being Jewish. But he puts it out onto these, this church, which was made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, right? The church of God. So he takes the Old Testament principle, he brings it right into um, the church in, in that age. Anyways. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes here, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes. And and that's true, isn't it? If your spouse dies, uh, you're legally no longer married. Um, you may not choose to get married after that, but you are, have a, an, a right to do that, except Paul says this, only in the Lord. If you're a believer, a Christian, you're really bound by certainly man's laws, I understand that, but the law in this case, is. And Paul says, you know, you need to be somebody in the Lord, somebody believing. Uh, that's the principle. And I want to say this carefully. I realize that isn't always the case. And there are maybe even people here, and I don't look into all your lives and all that very closely. I just say this, that you may be in a relationship, a husband and wife situation where one does not believe. And I know some have talked over the years, come to me and said it's a very difficult relationship when it comes to those things. And there's an element of your life you can't share with that, that spouse if they're an unbeliever. Uh, however, in the New Testament, it also says this, that, that, like for instance, a woman who was married to an unbelieving man, which was often the case in the early days of the church, you are to live as such to glorify Christ so that 
minimally, that person that you're married to is without excuse. If they still choose not to follow Christ, it isn't because of you. You've been the best wife, the best husband, whatever you can be in Christ, and you reach out in love on those things. But the better option is not to get into those relationships in the first place, if you're a believer. And I do recognize God is gracious, and I I know there's people here even that have had a husband or a wife that have come to faith in Christ after one of the uh, or the other have come to faith and and so that's our prayer you know i say continue to live for Christ and invite people to Christ right that's part of what we do as christians well you say well why does it really matter is it just cuz we want to be happy in marriage i mean i think everybody wants to be happy in their relationships and in particular marriage all of us want to have a happy and healthy marriage those that are married and Yet, it's more than that. Understanding this, that often coming out of marriage is the product of uh, procreation, which is children, right? And you have children that come out of that relationship. And God wanted, just like he said, he's faithful to thousands of generations, right? He was saying this, that it's important that this bride that would be chosen for Isaac would be one that would continue that grace onto the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And I'll, I'll just say that that's extremely important. To understand now, even now, maybe you aren't married, maybe you don't have kids, maybe that isn't, you're, you're not even going in that direction or whatever, that's fine. Um, but I just say this, that the children that come from that relationship, God is concerned that they also follow him. And he wanted Isaac also to be a man of faith. And he wanted Isaac's children to be uh, people of faith. And in Matthew chapter 1, the New Testament opens with the very genealogy. I mean, it's a strange way to open a book, right? The very opening of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, as that opens, and as my computer crashes on me here, um, as Matthew opens up, you have this instance of where get there myself you have a genealogy a family tree normally that's not the way i remember back in my uh, creative writing class or wherever it was in college they they always tell you you want that first paragraph to just hook you right in right and then you're ready to read the rest of it and when you come to this for our from our perspective probably today that's not the most exciting way to open up a book is to start listing off a bunch of names. When you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And, and I won't bless you with all the names that follow, right? There's all these names. You know, verse, look at it, it says, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab and Aminadab. And you get the point. All these names. To most of us today, we'd be like, whoopee. I mean, there's no, if you named your son Aminadab, I'm like, whoa, you know, that's new. Um, but there's a reason those are in there. And it's really that first verse, which is there. It says, the son of Abraham. So you come to the New Testament, 2,000 years on from Abraham, and the opening of the New Testament is about the birth of Christ. And you have the son of Abraham, which is in the family of Abraham, which is Jesus. Matthew 121 
says, And she will bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, in Hebrew, Ben Yeshua. Literally, salvation is the name Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. One thing you find is that in the line of Abraham, and, and before Abraham even, all the way back to Adam, you have a long line of sinners. Sinner begot a sinner, begot a sinner, begot a sinner. And we do that. Um, I had this discussion with a guy not long ago, and, and he said, little kids uh, are innocent. And I said, well, it's true. I, like, we always say that. They're innocent, but they're not really. They, they're little sinners. And they just haven't learned the great sins that the rest of us know, right? And you say, well, not my child. Well, I don't know whose child you have, but they aren't mine. I just say that. But uh, sorry, kids. I got two of them here, and they're looking at me bad. But listen, I didn't have to be taught how to lie. I already knew how to lie. I didn't have to be taught to deceive people or to steal something or those kind. Of, I that was in me. What I needed is someone who could save me from my sins and release me from that. And you know that's why Jesus came, and that's why he was born of a virgin. He came into this world miraculously, right? And the virgin conception, the virgin birth of Christ, is part of the, the what we call orthodox doctrine or. Or, or something that you know that really is a, a must for Christians. Because if Jesus was just another sinner in a long line of sinners, then we don't really have a savior from our sin. We just have another sinner who maybe taught some good moral things, teachings. We need someone who is like us, that has the same blood pumping through his veins, and yet is not tainted by original sin. And yet he had to come through Abraham's line because that was part of the prophecy that God had. And God told Abraham, way back there in Genesis chapter 12, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Look what it says here. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Hebrew people, but all. All you Gentiles. Guess what? He is God. And he wants you in that right relationship with him. Oh, I'm thankful for that. And we know that, um, that God was going to do that with, with Abraham. And he reaffirms that. Not because, again, Abraham was any... He's a man whose direction of life was one of trust, but he was a man that wasn't perfect. Remember, two occasions we have the record of Abraham lying about Sarah, uh, at least stretching the truth so that he was because he was more afraid of his own life than he was of God. And then God got a hold of him again. He repents and he continues to follow. And that's why I identify so well with Abraham because he's a man a lot like the rest of us are people. You know, we're all people that we we sin, we make mistakes. We have to repent. And life is a constant battle for that in a direction that we ought to always follow the Lord. And if you're not, stop right there and get right with Him. That's the answer. And that's what the scripture lays out. We find out the criteria. And as I said before, uh, some of the criteria that he was required is that he was not to select a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanite women. Secondly, he was to choose her from Abraham's relatives. Now that sounds a little strange. I joke about people like that that marry their relatives. But, but that was the case. It was from a family that he knew. 
And she would be a cousin in this case, in the lineage, um, which isn't genetically so bad, actually, uh, as, as what we used to be taught and stuff like that. So I'll leave that to those days and to God uh, in that way. But I would say this. He goes on to say this. He says um, that he was also to choose uh, not only a wife from among the relatives there or a household, uh, which I think pictures for us the household of faith, right? But he was also not to take Abraham back to his former home, I mean, Isaac back to his former home. You remember, Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and yet he still had family there. He had believing family that was there. But Abraham had been told to go out and to follow God, and God would show him a land and give him a land, and, and God did that. So when he goes, sends his servant back to that land... He says, I don't want Isaac settling there. And again, that pictures for us the call that is always there for the believer also, isn't it? It's always easier sometimes to go back to the old ways. They're not better ways. I'm sure Ur of the Chaldees, that was the, the modern day Iraq, but in that region, that was the bedrock of civilization, Mesopotamia, right? And if you ever studied history, you know, ancient history, that's where they always start with the bedrock of civilization started in that way. And isn't that the call? Go to the civilized lands and the places where you can live a little better and have a little more opportunities and those kind of things. And that's the call that always goes out to people. And yet, drawing into that, remember spiritually, Ur of the Chaldees was a place where they did not worship the one true God and they were lost in their sins. They didn't know who the Redeemer was. And here he was to go back to that land and he was to get a bride out of that land. Oh, a beautiful picture there of what Christ has done in gathering to himself a bride, the bride of Christ. Anyways, moving on a little bit. In, um, and we find out that that's what he does. And in, we'll get to this at a later study. But Genesis twenty four sixty seven, the very last verse of that chapter says, then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And I would say it this way, that you have this arranged marriage. It's odd to us who probably don't do that, although there's often you know, influence of that previous generation on the next to pick a bride or a, husband, a spouse. And we find here... Um, that goes on and they they were married and then they fell in love that seems to be the order in which it goes now i'm glad it worked out that way right aren't you glad it worked out that way um too often we put more onus on the love part and not the choice of a spouse uh and and first and foremost need to stick to those that criteria and by the way if someone loves the lord and you love the lord it's pretty easy to love each other it really is and I just throw that out for your consideration today. Who was the servant that went and did this? We don't know for sure. It says his, uh, his eldest servant who went off and did this. Um, we know of one man who fits that criteria back at Genesis 15, verse 2. But Abram said, The Lord God, um, or Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? See, one of the workers that Abraham employed was a man named Eliezer. 
And Eliezer was the senior member of the household. And the way inheritance worked in that day was, if you didn't have an heir, a blood heir, a child, then your wealth and your possessions and all of that would be passed on to the oldest servant or the oldest worker. And again, that was a very common practice. And Abraham was worried about that at that time. And yet God reaffirms, Abraham, I'm going to bring you a son. I am going to have, you're not going to be childless in that. You're not going to be. In verse 7, back there in Genesis 24, this is what it says. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham and his servant didn't do this decision or make, have this arranged marriage alone. Um, the servant was to go, but there was going to be a messenger from the Lord. That's what the word angel means. And there was going to be the Lord who would send forth a way of preparing someone on the other end of things. And may I just say this, that God is in the business of preparing hearts everywhere all the time. And he's not bound by time even. He inhabits eternity. That's what the Bible says. And you know, it's not by chance that we are just here, right? It is absolutely part of God's plan and the way a sovereign God works. And he's able to work not only in my heart, but your heart at the same time, in my life, in your life. And he's able to order our steps even. Even if we don't recognize that, he still orders our steps. And we see that... uh, He sends out his servant, but he didn't send his servant blindly. He had someone that would go before him, an angel of the Lord who would show him the way in that. And I'm glad because uh, we don't go out blindly either. Some people say, well, you know, faith is blind, right? Blind kind of faith. No, not at all. Matter of fact, if, if God required me to trust him just solely in blind faith, that I would never I don't think I'd ever come to Christ and I mean that I was quite a skeptic when I was a teenager and I would get in debates and arguments and and later on just as I was graduating high school I had a Christian friend who sat down with me and he said read the Bible you know just just dared me to start reading it I started reading it and I realized wow this book gives me insight for not only my life but the way my life should go and not only It doesn't give all the details about Jack Heron's life, but it gives me the God who does order my steps, and it tells me so much. The Bible is a light onto our path, right? He directs our footsteps with it, and he's not been silent. And so as I came to know the God of the Bible, as I began to read through these things, and I realized first and foremost that I'm a sinner, and I'm in big trouble with God because I broke his law. That's what the law tells us, that we're sinners. And I haven't met anybody that's ever kept the whole law. And you won't either. If you do meet somebody like that, I'd just say step on their foot real hard and see what comes out of their mouth, right? They'll probably break the law. Uh, and and I, don't do that, please. But I say it this way because, you know, we have violated a holy, righteous God and our sin is an affront to Him. And why would God ever allow that into His presence in heaven? Because it would just ruin heaven. 
Instead, he wants people who are saved from their sin. Only one problem. The wages of sin is what? Death. That's what Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. It doesn't end there, though. It says what? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. I broke God's law. The Bible told me I broke his law. And I was convicted of that. And I said, oh, Lord, what do I do? He says, don't worry, I've sent someone to be a savior for you. God's answer to every sin of this world, God's answer to every evil act that will occur and has occurred, is the fact that he sent his only begotten son for us to die in our place. Don't ever blame God and say God hasn't done anything with all the evil things in our world. You know, that's an easy excuse saying, well, how could a good God allow evil and suffering in a world? Let me tell you, the answer to God, the answer of God to that is he gave his best. God the Son came and he died in our place and he shed his blood in suffering. All the harm and the hurt and the shame and everything else nailed to the cross. And if you'll believe, if you'll turn from your sin and trust him, he promises to be your savior and he promises you a place in heaven. That's the Bible message. It's as simple as that. I made it a lot more complicated when I was growing up. I thought, well, I had to be... I had to go to church, you know, going to church isn't going to hurt you. Sometimes, I mean, if they're they're in the Bible, you know, teaching it. Being baptized, I thought maybe that's maybe the way you do it. No, you just go down in the water as a sinner and you come up as a sinner if that's all you did. Baptism is a public display of what should have gone on in the heart already. And that's the principle of scripture in the New Testament. People were converted and then they were baptized. Not baptized to be converted, just so you know that. And that is, I saw that in the scripture. And I said, wow. And so those things don't save you in and of themselves. What saves you is that trust in the one who can save you, which is the Lord. And he's given us that. Abraham looked forward by faith. Today we can look back by faith, but it's still by faith, right? But it's not a blind faith. He's given us all kinds of light, hasn't he? You remember, later on, the servant would say this, and I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. The servant is worried. What about the woman? She might, he he probably knew women, you know. Well, I won't go any further. Don't do that, right? My kids are like, Dad, don't go there. Don't go there. You're out on that branch, Dad. What happens if she doesn't do what I want? Wow. Wow. And that isn't the case. You see, remember, God works on both ends, doesn't he? He's working in the hearts of people. Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. And you will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family for if they will not give her to you then you will be released from my oath his servant had made an oath and and we read that verse where it was an interesting custom he said put your hand underneath my thigh now listen if i'm sitting next to you and you do that i'm going to probably hit you but uh back in that day that was part of the covenant it was grabbing a man in his strength of his thigh and saying by all my strength, you better make that oath. Today, hopefully, a handshake will do. And 
he made that oath. And he was bound by that oath unless the woman said no. Then he was freed up. Or when the woman came back. I love that. He was true to his word. He went out and did that. And as I said, God is a God who works in those ways and he's directing our paths and he's directing our steps. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him, right? And he will direct your paths. He will direct your paths. In Matthew chapter uh, 6 verse 33 It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You know, those are verses you can camp on. If you will seek what God wants to seek, he will direct your path in a right way. If you want to seek your own, you're going to end up, well, as the Bible says, there's a way that seems right onto a man, but the ends of the way of death. Right? Right? A lot of people running around today saying, I'm enlightened. Uh, I, I know more than you. And I, I think you, you people of the book, you guys are crazy. You're a bunch of brainwashed idiots. You know, I've heard people say that sometimes. And yet, as the Bible says, their foolish hearts were darkened. They believed they were enlightened, but their foolish hearts became darkened. Why? Because they got further from our Creator further from the one who has revealed himself and his ways to us. And he's made those ways clear. And he's promised to direct our steps. But just like you can't steer a, a ship that's at port or you know, at anchor, you have to be moving forward, right? Seeking him and he directs you as you go. And it's great. It's great. Well, I'm running out of time here, but... I will say this, that in this chapter in Genesis, and we're just getting into the very part front of this chapter, you see the will of the Father. The will was this of Abraham, that he would send forth his servant, his servant would go, and to seek out a bride. And I said earlier, and I won't have time today to go into all of it, but uh, for your homework, if you want to, all right, you, I want you to go and look up like Ephesians. Go read through the book of Ephesians, for example. In Ephesians chapter 1, In the first 14 verses, you see the will of the Father, who is seeking a bride, all right? In this case, the church. That's further explained in Ephesians chapter 5. And then you see the Son, who is given. And you see the Holy Spirit, who is the one that draws people to Christ. In the book of Genesis, you see the types that are found there. And these things are shadows of a greater to come. That's what the New Testament says of the Old Testament. And, and, and it was this, that you had the will of the Father, that was pictured in Abraham. You have the nameless servant, he didn't bring glory to himself, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is even now uh, seeking those who want to come to faith in Christ, who are willing, and he's convicting of sin, he's illuminating the heart and mind, he's drawing people to Christ, and he does that, and he does it with the emphasis on Christ, and not, or on the Son, and not on himself. And then you have the son himself who gave himself. It would be Isaac that would have to take the bride and be married. The commitment was on him. And you see all that pictured in an earthly wedding, a wedding that has blessed all of us, and out of that family that would come, out of that genealogy, uh, would come 
one who would be born in that same human race, and it would be Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. Do you know him? Are you part of his family? You can. can be by faith. That's how you get into that family. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, again, we're thankful for your word, thankful for who you are, thankful for your mighty grace that is given to us, totally undeserved. And really, Lord, that's how it is, or otherwise it wouldn't be grace. We thank you for that, Lord, and thank you that you yourself have gathered together a people, a special people, not because they themselves are special, but because they've been redeemed by Jesus Christ and by his great sacrifice, the cost of that. Thank you that you rose again victorious over sin and death and secure that victory, that salvation. I pray many people in our world today would come to saving faith in Christ, and I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.